Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at. And, ah, you know, talking about uh, lots of stuff with uh, disasters and climate and all these things, um, I had to bring on the expert who wrote the book, Disasterology. So I have Dr. Samantha Montoya here with me today. And we're going to get into the difference between, and this is global speaking here, of how uh, women are treated or are impacted by disasters compared to, to men. Um, and doing some research on this, it's really kind of wild how things happen uh, globally. Uh, Dr. Montoya, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So. It's always great seeing you, Samantha. Yeah. Um, you, you know, before the show started, we were kind of getting into that conversation um, about the disparities between how um, men fare in disasters compared to, to women. Um, well, I guess my question is, is like, why is that? I, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to figure out and really digest and understand that huge divide. Patriarchy. <laughs> That's the one word answer, right? So we live in a society that is built up around uh, the economic and political uh, and societal belief that men dominate and that um, all of our systems, then that means is built up around this idea, right? That women are less than men and that we are, um, we are we are building our systems for the dominant, right? And so everything from our legal systems to our economic systems to our emergency management system are all built in a way uh, that is designed for men as compared to women. Now, is that worldwide or is, because I mean, I, I, and the reason why I ask the question, I'm looking here from like on, on the Western in Canada and England, the United States specifically, um, studies have shown that more women are graduating from college with advanced degrees with men by, by like 50%. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so economically speaking, that would be, you would think that would go the same way, right? But it's not. Okay, so in the workforce, you still have more, more men in the workforce than women, even though with the degrees and stuff. So that's just a whole nother study where I find very interesting. Um, but then when it when it comes to disasters and back in 90s i did a study uh, or i studied a the northridge earthquake and the impact and the whittier nerves earthquake i combined both of those and the stores the businesses that did not open up um were tended to be minority owned women businesses um, impact then and, and again those are service industry businesses like beauty salons nail nail salons um restaurants um is that are we still seeing that impact today uh, in the western world uh yeah d depending on the event there are certainly still gendered disparities in terms of impacts and especially in how uh, women are able to move throughout the recovery process um one thing to note as you know, you brought up the kind of international aspect here. One thing to note is that there are kind of various indexes that look at gender equality country to country. Um, and generally speaking, it's the case that when you have 
greater gender inequality in a country, then you would see more inequality in terms of impacts and ability to recover from a disaster as compared to countries where there are greater rates of gender equality. I, I was reading this UN study and they're talking about um, India. <clears throat> and in this report, they're looking at a few floods and an, and an earthquake uh, that, that occurred. And they were saying that um, economically speaking, uh, it seems like as men kind of control the reins uh, of the economics and then women tend to be looked upon and those are their words, not mine, uh, almost like a second class uh, of citizen. Um, and that the women tend to, um, I don't want to say move out of the way, but they tend to support the men and even less so won't eat or drink water water. Um, and give that to to men. Is that a cultural thing that's there, or is that demanded by society? That's there. I couldn't figure that out reading the report. Yeah, I I haven't read that specific report, so um, I'm not totally sure. But I would say that you know that sounds to me more like an an example here of this extreme gender inequality, right? And that is going to be driven by different cultures, it's going to be driven by the different political systems, who is in power in those political systems. So there, there's probably a, a kind of a lot of different factors that are playing into that. Do do we see that being similar here in the Western world, like the United States and Canada and, and you know, Australia, New Zealand? I'm thinking of, of the areas that we, that I interact with on a regular basis, um, you know, are we seeing that same problem there as well? Um, or is it less so? Um, I don't know. In some ways, I think it's a little bit comparing apples to oranges, right? <laughs> These are very, very different cultures. Um, I would say, yes, absolutely. You still see gender inequality in the U.S., in Canada, in Australia. Um, and I think also within specific communities, you'll see even kind of more gender inequality than in other parts, even within a country. Okay, so now that we have that established, because that's, I think it's important to to kind of put that baseline down there, how do we fix it? <laughs> you smash the patriarchy. That's what the bumper stickers say. Um, yeah, I, I mean, but seriously, you have to dismantle patriarchal systems, right? So you have to, um, the like broad answer here is like look society wide to dismantle these systems, um, economic, political, uh, etc. I would include the emergency management system. And for our audience here, perhaps that's the most relevant. Um, so I think there's a, a kind of a couple different approaches you take here, right? There's the immediate kind of stopgap measures that we can take to uh, kind of address the acute instances of sexism and discrimination that we see uh, within emergency management and within specific disasters that are like currently happening and like will happen in the near future. 
And then there's the kind of much more difficult work, I think, of actually pulling apart the emergency management system and really finding where uh, these gender inequalities are entrenched within that system and thinking about kind of what, uh, in the process of reforming that system, what kind of changes need to be made from a, a gender lens. So, okay. So where do we start? I mean, and, and not, not trying to be argumentative here, but just for the sake of the conversation. Um, I mean, you know, Deanne Criswell is now leading FEMA, right? Our first female emergency manager at that level, which is exciting and great. Um, so we've, we've won, right? It's over. Certainly not. Um, it's great to have uh, a woman as the head of FEMA. I think that is really important in terms of the visibility of women in emergency management. Um, I think it does wonders for helping young girls who are wanting to maybe go into emergency management to see um, a woman in that top position. Um, at the same time, um, there's still a lot of work to be done, right? She is one person in emergency management and we need to be looking broadly across uh, all levels of government into the private sector, into the nonprofit sector uh, to see kind of what uh, the gender breakdown is in those numbers um, and work to build a, a more equal profession overall. How, I don't know if there's a, a, an easy answer to this. How do we as educators um, encourage uh, a more diverse um, group of people to come into our classroom? Because the problem that we have generally, right, as the collective as far as higher education for emergency management is, there's a ton of people out there that have no clue what we do, right? They don't know what emergency management is. They know what fire police, what we've talked about this a gazillion times, right? Um, they don't understand geology. They're like, oh yeah. And, and even people understand like plate tectonics. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to take that. And then you go, oh, what about this emergency management thing? They're like, well, what is that? And so now you get a freshman coming into college and you explain to them what the take the, what emergency management is. And they go, oh, okay, interesting. But how do we get people to come through the doors? to be able to step up and be the next leader? Yeah, so, uh, you know, to your point, marketing the field of emergency management generally is remains one of our biggest challenges, whether that is getting people into emergency management programs um, or getting them into the profession or getting politicians to pay attention to us or getting research funded. So really across the board, we have um, this, this marketing problem. Um, but I think in how we work to address that marketing problem, there are a lot of opportunities for us to present a more diverse emergency management in terms of gender, race, um, ability, et cetera. Um, there is, you know, when you start getting students walking into your door for those emergency management classes, we have to be really, really careful about what decisions we're making about what gets put on the syllabus, which books we're having them read, what articles we're having them read, what videos we're showing in class. Uh, the 
the names of disaster researchers and emergency managers that we're having them learn, right? We have a choice as educators of, are we going to assign a syllabus that is written by all, that only has readings by all white men, or are we going to intentionally make sure that there are other races, other genders, uh, represented on our syllabus? Are we only going to show, you know, clips from disasters where there is a white male emergency manager at the podium? Or are we going to intentionally seek out those videos of people who look different from what the common perception is of an emergency manager? So, um, you know, I think that question of getting people into the doors is, is a kind of a really broad one and a really tough one. Yeah. But I do think once they're in that door, that's where we have a responsibility to make sure that um, we are presenting this image of what we want emergency management to look like, even if we're not fully there yet. And I think that's really, really critical, not only for the women and, and people of color who are sitting in that classroom as students, but it's also deeply important for the white male students sitting in that classroom to see. Having gender and race and class integrated into every single course we teach in emergency management isn't this extra added on thing anymore. This is the, this is it. This is the central, um, this is the central foundation for how students coming out of these programs need to be understanding emergency management, because that is the reality in the field in terms of what we need to be doing to prepare these different populations in our communities, how they are differently impacted and what their recovery process is going to look like. It's got you got me thinking because my my current master class um, that I'm teaching we have um, more than half the class is is female, but um, across the board everybody is uh, white, mm -hmm. right? And it just happened to be that way. Well, that's just in that one cohort, um, but it just happened to be that way. It wasn't like. We, suck, we we went and seeked out those people to join the class, you know, and, and now you have me thinking of like, how do you add and get people like, you know, excited about a master's in emergency management? You know what I mean? And this is where I'm struggling with it. And that's why I'm asking the question, right? Yeah. Is, well, I think it, it's important to think about, too, of why that is, right? That probably didn't just happen. I'm going to guess that the faculty in your program is probably pretty white. Uh, to me, Am I'm I white. Right? I mean, I'm a white Okay. <laughs> so, right. So part of this is the, the institution that students are walking into, right? If it is a mostly white institution, if when they look around to see who is majoring in that field, they're only seeing the guys on campus major in that field. Um, if they aren't hearing um, about opportunities for um, you know, people who are disabled to still work in emergency management, then you're probably not going to feel welcomed into that program, right? You, you want to be seeing people that like, th this is why that content piece is so important. So if you're a one person faculty, right, not a lot you can do about that but you can try to make up for that in these other ways, right? So that's one thing. The other thing too, is to the extent that we are recruiting for these programs, looking at who we are recruiting and what services and resources that we are providing for 
potential students coming into our programs, right? If uh, you are recruiting from communities uh, where you have a lot of first-generation college students, for example, you need extra support systems in your program. You are going to have to spend more time sitting down explaining kind of what we tend to think of as these more like basic college things, right? Of like, what are office hours? How to use a writing center? How to use the library? These are, are these kind of added uh, needs that students have who are coming from these more marginalized communities. Um, and so as educators and as people who are running these emergency management programs, we need to make sure that not only we, that we have those services, but that we are vocalizing those services and demonstrating a commitment to our students who are coming into these programs that when there is a, a, you know, a racist incident or somebody makes a sexist comment in class, that it is dealt with immediately, that we are demonstrating to our students that there is no space for this in emergency management and that there is a support network to support them when those events do happen. I've been pretty lucky with that over the years of teaching that I haven't had to have um, um, that. And I don't know if it's because of who has come into my my classroom. Um, and like even at the community college, um, I haven't really had any major issues with, with that, uh, which I'm, I'm grateful for. Uh, maybe I'm just lucky. I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, uh, but at least the complaints, yeah. are, you know, so, um, but the, the, uh, on the other side of it though, is um, I, I think when you lay down the law and as I call it the law in the, cl- the classroom, Right, that's the syllabus and say that this will not be tolerated. There is no, you know, uh, there's no grace period there for it. Uh, it's just blatant. I mean, I, I guess if somebody says something inadvertently, such as like a, as like, you know, something that doesn't seem to be racist to them or whatever, then I, there are things that you might say that might fall in that category. Uh, I, I get the grace there, but if it's blatant on purpose, um, you know, that needs to be destroyed at that time. Yeah, certainly. I do think it's really important too, though, as educators to make sure that we are also watching for those kind of smaller microaggressions that occur in probably any setting, right, whether work or or a classroom. And I think that sometimes um, when those microaggressions occur uh, to a person who doesn't share the same identities as we do, it can be a lot harder to spot those microaggressions. Um, You know, even I I think here too, and going back to gender specifically, thinking about um, when I am teaching a class and noticing, is it only the male students in class that are raising their hands? Why are none of the women raising their hands in this classroom? Is that because they don't have anything to say? Or is it because there is this kind of subtle dynamic in the classroom that is making them feel uncomfortable because they feel like the male students are, are kind of dominating that conversation? And those kinds of things, right, if you don't necessarily know or you aren't constantly thinking to look for those things, that is something that can really kind of slip by you. Um, and then once you do start looking out for it, you're like, oh, no, this is happening a lot, right? What, what's the dynamic and what can I do as an instructor to try and, and mitigate this, uh, this issue in the class, right? So um, I'm going to intentionally call on the women students or I'm going to pull them aside after class or, you know, whatever the case may be given the situation. 
Yeah, I, I and I do that anyway. If I have a quiet student, uh, no matter what gender, race, or or what they're looking at, I'll, I'll pull them into the conversation because I think it's critical to hear what they have to say. A lot of times, just across the board, sometimes those quiet students are the ones that have the most profound insight of what's going on because they just they just don't feel like sharing for whatever reason. And you pull them in and you go, you need to share more. You know, you need to yeah. talk up a little bit more in class. Um, you, you know, and I think that too is 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 brought all the way from like, like kindergarten or maybe even preschool all, all the way up, you, you know, when it comes to um, kids or people interacting that, that are afraid, not afraid, but shy to interact in class. And uh, uh, we need to have necessarily having them learn that they can speak um, anybody who's quiet, right. Uh, that they can speak into the class without fear of being humiliated and i think there's a little bit of that i'm I'm a guy who i i had dyslexia i still do have dyslexia it doesn't go away um and oh man i remember when we were doing class reading as a kid i would just be sweating bullets when it came to me because i was like oh man they're gonna force me to to read like this page and i'm just gonna screw it up um i so i understand that fear of being singled out uh, but when it's just i obviously when you're singling out ideas it's really important to bring things and that's also a leadership trait right i don't speak it to educators out there right now all right so those of you that teach no matter what if you have us training right you leave that classroom and you make sure that everybody's involved in the conversation because i think it's critical so uh, it's a little bit of uh, uh you know todd telling people how to teach but <laughs> it's adult education right Samantha. um <clears throat> so how, but how do you do that how, how do you engage your class to make sure everybody's voices are being heard in the classroom yeah, so I mean, a lot of things. One, I think it starts with the syllabus, having really clear instructions on there about the classroom, you know, being this open forum for people to speak and, you know, kind of the usual things that you see in those kind of syllabus statements. Um, but for me, it always starts with day one. Um, the past couple of years, I've been teaching the, our freshman emergency management students. And in our program, it's mostly 18, 19 year olds um, who have also been online uh, the past couple of years. So being back in a, a classroom and being in this setting is, I think, already overwhelming, right, for anybody. Um, you're sitting in, you know, a class of 30 people, you're learning about a topic that you don't really know anything about. Um, and of course, I think just about anybody in that situation is going to have some kind of anxiety about participating or whatnot. But um, I build in a lot of uh, opportunities for like in-class activities and making sure that um, there are kind of different modes for students to express their thoughts about the class, whether it's writing assignments or speaking up in class. Um, and over time, I generally see that students become more comfortable speaking up. Um, I, um, it's, I'm glad to hear you haven't had many incidents in your class. I have always had incidents in my class of, you know, uh, whether they are uh, kind of intentional comments or these kind of smaller microaggressions um, about race or gender or whatever in class, always making sure to address those right away, head on. Uh, I go over race, class, and gender as these foundational concepts very early on in the class, mm. um, and 
uh, and then, you, you know, talking with students one on one, of course, is always the maybe the preferred approach um, and checking in with students. Right. Why aren't you speaking up in class? Are you just shy? Like that is OK. You, If you do not want to talk in class, that's fine. But if there is some barrier that is um, making you feel like you can't, then mm -hmm. that's what we need to address. So we kind of circling things all the back around. So we, we have an issue where um women are impacted drastically different during disasters than men um the economic recovery for women is much slower than it is is for men and and women owned minority owned businesses tend to fail more after disaster than male owned white owned businesses and then we're saying okay now we're bringing it to now we have to educate our next leaders into these issues but are we doing enough as academic researchers into finding out not just okay there's a cause there's an issue here but the solution to that because i haven't seen i've seen papers that say yeah this is a problem right i've read hundreds mm -hmm. of those i haven't found one saying this is a solution or you know funny funny that you say that um in probably 20 14, I want to say, um, myself and one of my colleagues, Dr. Amanda Savitt, published a, a literature review in the Journal of Emergency Management, um, which was titled something along the lines of rethinking our approach to gender and disasters, uh, needs, responsibilities, and solutions. <laughs> um, and at the time, it's a little bit dated at this point. Um, there's been more research that has come out since we did that literature review, but we were specifically focused on uh, the gender uh, research and specific, I shouldn't say gender, I should say research on women in disasters that had been done in the United States. And we were looking at like peer reviewed empirical research. Um, and at the time there were quite, we were quite limited in the number of articles. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was a, a relatively small number of articles that really kind of fit that bill. Um, and there was like one or two books um, that had been written by disaster researchers that had explicitly looked at, at the issue of women in disasters. Um, and so we did, you know, a literature review on that and looked at kind of how those articles had been framed, what the findings were. And um, I, one of the kind of major findings for me in that article was the need to uh, rethink this narrative of women as a vulnerable population and more specifically looking at what are the actual needs of women in disasters that are different than men, right? Where is there an actual need? Because that's what we are working to address most acutely in emergency management, right? We, we care about these, these broader, like, societal inequalities, but in terms of what we actually have control over in the moment, we're, we're thinking about those needs and response and recovery, and then how that on the back end filters back into how we're doing preparedness and mitigation. And so um, in looking at kind of what those differences are, uh, like I'll give you one example, looking at um, access to reproductive health care while displaced at a shelter for a long period of time, right? We have all of these emergency plans written for how shelters are going to be set up. And at least at the time, hopefully they're, they're a little better now, but at the time, 
there wasn't anything in there about, you know, were there going to be menstruation products for people? Were there going to be private rooms for mothers to breastfeed? Um, were there going to be these other kind of specific healthcare related needs for that mostly affect women, right? Um, and part of that goes back to the fact that the majority of people who are writing those emergency plans are men. They weren't thinking about this, right? And of course, in retrospect, that's so ridiculous because we we're talking about 50% of the population. Um, but even thinking about that now, you know, uh, you know, eight years later or whatever, since we wrote that article, um, th these are still huge issues, right? And there are disaster researchers that have done incredible work on this. I immediately, Dr. Sarah DeYoung comes to mind in her work on breastfeeding and disasters. Um, and the kind of most recent uh, story on this was about access to abortion during disasters in these forced birth states that we're dealing with now. Um, all of these issues, right, are these like quote unquote women's issues, which is kind of a problematic framing to begin with, but the, these are issues that emergency managers need to be dealing with and need to be planning for, right? This is impacting this huge swath of your population. You have a responsibility to address these. So to get back to your question of solutions, one of the, the like easiest things we need to be doing is going back over the planning that we're doing and the preparedness work that we're doing and stepping back and saying, are we creating a plan that is supposed to meet every single person's needs? Because we know that's not possible. We know that whether it's gender or race or ability or class or sexuality or whatever it is, that there are going to be differences in the needs that people have when a disaster happens. And we need to be making sure that we're uh, addressing the, these groups that have been marginalized and have these different needs and making sure that they're represented in the planning process and also represented in those plans. I don't know if you guys can hear the dog barking in the background. I apologize about that. Um, yeah, so with that, I mean, what I did in, in, when I was working in the city before we wrote a plan is I invited all the stakeholders in my community. That was a small community, right? 25,000 people, you know, it's a, not huge. So there's groups, nonprofits, whatever. And, and heard their voices of what they felt they needed specifically for for that. Um, can that be done um, in larger cities like LA or New York? Yeah, I think it can, of course. Um, but even but even that I, I wanna kind of address too is when you have, uh, I don't know the exact approach you took for your meeting, but very often I'll see an emergency management agency take this approach where you're, you're gonna hold a community meeting, you're gonna pull in as many stakeholders as possible to work on these plans together, which I think you know the research supports, it's the process that's most important and it's good to have those voices represented. But even when you do that, I always think it's important to think of who is not going to be able to come to that meeting, right? It's going to be the person who is disabled and you know accommodations haven't been made. It's going to be the single mother who doesn't have child care. Um, and it's going to be those people that tend to fall into those most marginalized categories to begin with. And so um, I think this is where we need to be really, really, really proactive and really be putting in 
kind of even more effort than we ever have before in emergency management in reaching out, right? Okay, so um, somebody isn't able to come to the meeting, they they're immunocompromised, they, they can't come because they're worried about COVID. Okay, online option, right? Pro that, that person has this alternative solution that they can still participate. Okay, we want single mothers to be involved, we're gonna provide childcare, right? There are ways to address those needs so that we can make sure that they are actually represented at those meetings and so that it isn't just, um, you know, part of our community represented. I didn't have a single mother that I know of at least <laughs> in, in the group. I know yeah. I had- we, You we gotta had, have a babysitter. Yeah, we, we had, we had uh, everybody, all, all the other areas were kind of touched on, right? I mean, you know, specifically on purpose, right? Because this was an invite meeting. It wasn't a uh, open meeting. Um, but I never thought about, we had somebody from the from the school, from the PTA. I don't know if she was a single mother or not, but you know what I mean? Like I never asked that question. Sure. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, see, I, I, I'm learning, right? You know, I'm still, I'm an old guy and I'm still learning these things. <laughs> so we're coming here close to the end of our, our conversation. We could go on forever. Um, um, how do people, well, first of all, uh, you know, if you haven't read Disasterology, buy the book, read it. I'm going to just say that straight up. Uh, I normally ask the question of what are you reading, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to preempt that to just say, buy, buy, buy Smith's book. It's, it's well worth it. Um, but how do people find you how, if they want to talk to you? Yeah, so um, I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, it's at Sam L. Montano, M-O-N-T-A-N-O. -O. Um, so you can find me there. Um, I also, if you go to my website, www.disaster-ology.com, you can find links to articles and I do a monthly newsletter and all kinds of things, links to the book and, and whatnot. Absolutely awesome. Samantha, thank you so much for your time today and uh, look yeah. forward to talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us. These conversations are really critical to, to move the profession forward and to move what we're doing as emergency managers um, to the next level. And it truly is something that we have to keep in consideration of who are we serving and, and what, who are we looking to serve when it comes to uh, emergency management during blue sky days. Uh, so when we do have the gray sky, um, and that we are already ahead of the game and, and ready to go. Hey, if you like this conversation and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. Uh, give us five stars if you can. And also uh, follow us on our Substack as well. We have the uh, Emergency Management Network on Substack, a great newsletter that is sharing information with some awesome writers over there. Uh, I think you'll learn a lot and get a lot out of that. So that's Substack. It's the Emergency Management Network at Substack. And so until next week, everybody, stay safe, stay hydrated.